0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a keynote presentation from the 2022 Craco Conference, making institutional changes to offer clinical research options in health systems for a wider range of patients. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit CracoEvent.com. Thank you, and enjoy the podcast. Good morning. It's my great pleasure to be here with you this morning. I want to thank the planning team for your invitation, and especially Jennifer Byrne, who is the uh, consummate friend and connector, as well as Andrew and the team for making sure that I got here and my slides got here before me. Uh, I was in the Pacific Ocean cruising last week. And of course, you know what connectivity is like there. I'm going to see if I can advance these slides. And I assume it's the green button, maybe? Yeah. So this morning I'm going to talk about some of the reasons why our clinical trials are not diverse. And what we can do as institutions and as organizations and funders and policymakers to make differences in the way we recruit and enroll persons for our studies, research studies and clinical trials. So our time together this morning, we're going to talk about some disparities in health. We're going to talk about the landscape and some historical perspectives about research and and equity. We're going to talk about some research at Wake Forest University School of Medicine. We're going to talk about changing the narrative, the way we talk about research and and recruitment and enrollment, and then building trustworthiness in Alzheimer's research, which is my area of study. I'm going to try to talk slow down and talk not so fast, but I do know that I have 30 minutes and actually 25, I believe. So why disparities and why the importance of equity in research? Um, What is happening with the way we recruit and with the way studies are done and clinical trials are done? Um, There's nothing um, biologically inherent about race, uh, race is a is not a biological entity however we use race as a proxy for the way people have been treated the way people um, are categorized isabel wickerson called them calls them caste systems and then therefore how people have been um, commoditized and how people actually have been able to live, and, and we look at these factors, such as the social drivers of health, and we see that these factors the way people live, play, stay, pray, uh, where they grow up, how much education they have, the socioeconomic status, what their communities look like these are the reasons that we have differences in health outcomes. Now, these are not reasons why people should be determined as less of less value and why people should not really be excluded from anything. This morning at breakfast, I talked to Jennifer about a bald eagle that I saw while I was in Alaska last week. And the bald eagle was at the the apex of of the predator system. And when you watch a bald eagle and a little bird interact and interplay, you see the helplessness of the little bird because it knows to stay in its place. Well, This morning, I'm going to talk about how we have to to keep people not so much in these boxes and in these sandboxes that we're used to, but how we have to really get outside of our thinking, get outside of the way we engage communities and engage participants in studies and clinical trials. Because the time is really out for continuing to have most of our, about 90% of our research studies and clinical trials that are European. And so if we continue to do that, then we continue to study the same people and we get some of the same kinds of outcomes. Um, So basically what is happening is that systemic racism has caused a lot of differences in health outcomes. And because of that, uh, and we just have to be very honest with ourselves and recognize that these are why systems and communities are separate. These are why we tend to do the same thing, like keeping our studies and trials um, pretty much homogeneous. So if you look at, this is just a a chart, a table that came out of a study in North Carolina. If you look at where the red boxes are on this this, uh, figure, you'll see where different groups in the state of North Carolina really need help. Red means they're really, really below where they need to be in health outcomes. And then you see... The white, which is the reference, the white boxes, the references, the reference boxes, and then the green, where, where people are doing pretty well. Now, so you see that in, in North Carolina, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, not so much, but American Indians really in bad shape. One of the reasons we don't know a lot about how American Indians are doing is because we don't have data on them in North Carolina and North Carolina has one of the highest populations of American Indians in the country, well, and the highest east of the Mississippi. So just as a part of, if you look at obesity, this is actually a slide that I, Jamie Ard uh, at our institution allowed me to use. And, and, and we just talk about these differences in health outcomes with people. Why? And again, we started the, the conversation with there's nothing inherently biological about differences in these races. So, what is the difference? The differences are those social drivers that have made differences in the way people are treated, the way people live, the way people perceive, and the way people, and, and, and the, the, the outcomes of individuals. If you look at Alzheimer's disease, which I will refer to several times in this talk, uh, and it's the study. Uh, at the area in which I study, as I said, if you look at the disparities in ADRD, and really it could be almost any chronic disease, and actually what we found out in COVID is that it's not only chronic diseases, <laughs> but it's also acute diseases, is that these same pictures show up in certain populations. And again, African Americans and Hispanics more likely to have AD. We've seen slides like these forever. And ever. And in this slide, what we see and what we know for sure now, and I'm grateful that we're now beginning to realize that these social drivers um, are account for about 80% of our health outcomes, and that actually access to care about 20%. Who would have ever thought, right? So, And in this case, in dementia, we see that if we could change some of these factors, some of these social drivers in early, mid, and late life, that we could certainly reduce even a chronic disease prevalence uh, across time. If you look at North Carolina as an example, in East Winston, which is actually right across the street, actually my office sits in East Winston, and you, but if you look at three zip codes within that space, what you find are these things. Your grocery stores, public libraries, medical clinics, third grade reading level, 27%. It's actually in the top 10 for hopelessness and economic mobility. Now, why is this the case when just two, two and a half miles down the road, the lifespan is 14 year and a half years longer? Just doesn't make sense. And so when we think about research and we think about inclusion and diversity we have to include what we do and our connections with communities like these. Because after all, these are the very people in these three zip codes in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is where Wake Forest University School of Medicine resides. These are the people who are not in our studies and trials. These are the people who are not white, male, They are not, these are the people who who you just won't find in a registry. Sex and gender uh, minorities, minoritized communities, communities with disadvantages, um, and have just very high uh, neighborhood disadvantage indices. Communities that have poor performance schools. We have right in Winston-Salem, right in our backyard of a medical school, schools that have the lowest performance in the state of North Carolina. And so why do I bring this up in this room in this space is because when we think about trials and studies and inclusion our communities are where we must go. And it's these communities when we look at our North Carolina registry for brain health we do a great job of enrolling people but when they actually in the in the in the registry but when we actually try to enroll them from these neighborhoods In studies, it's about 10% across all minoritized communities, and about 90% white. So again, life expectancies, and we could just go on with that. But I just want to throw this up because when we're thinking about this issue that we have in the research space, we cannot deny that historical context make a difference. So what do we do with that? How do we begin to build trust and trustworthiness? And I like to, to use trustworthiness because I like to situate the trust within the context of what we do as academic institutions, as corporations and pharmaceutical companies. So if we, if we look at it through the lens of what we do, not because you enslaved anyone in this room, But this is a part of the context. This is a part of the barrier that we have to get over. Okay? So then trust, building trust in these very communities, and they're not all black, they're not all Hispanic, Latinx, they're not all Asian Americans, they're not all of anything. they They could be very poor whites as well. So when we talk about diversity and inclusion, we're talking about making this thing called research and clinical trials available to all. And meeting people where they are when we want them to engage in our studies and when we want them to have good health outcomes in general, which is where we need to be. That's the nexus of where we need to be. We want people to be healthier, irrespective of race, gender, um, sexual preference, economic status. We want good research outcomes so that we can make do a better job of generalizing what we know. So if you look at this group as an, as an example, you've, you've got about 12% of the time that they've been in America where they've actually had enough freedom to make decisions. So how do we, and even if we're not black, if we're not from one of these communities that I talked about, how do we together make a difference? What do we do? All right. We can just look at COVID. Same, same situation. Again, uh, not necessarily a um, chronic disease situation. We have to recognize bias and disparity in medicine and research. We have to recognize that we all have biases but when they become a part of um, decisions that make that, are, that distinguish one group from another, then we have problems. This is a recent study that came out of one of the highest biomedical science journals proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that shows just, just the way we treat individuals across the lifespan. Babies are treated differently in terms of health outcomes if they're treated by white doctors or if they're treated by black doctors. Um, these, this is unacceptable. When we look at um, this is a study that the Alzheimer's Association did. Um, um, it's it's just looking at uh, Black Americans and Hispanic Americans and Asian Americans and and their belief that they'll be discriminated against. Same kind of thing. We're finding data. I'm really excited because we're we're actually beginning in the scientific community to look at data and we look at, at opportunities to improve how we do things, how we. Generalize how we how we create use allow biases to make differences in people how we treat people in the clinic Um, so this is really interesting data and um, it's kind of scary in some ways Um, and when we still look at this was a 2021 study Uh, so this is very recent work and again um, discrimination when we don't even sometimes realize that's what we're doing it's just sort of baked in. So it's important for us to recognize that these types of differences do occur. I'm not going to read this, uh, but just to let you know that the Association of American um, Association of of American uh, uh, Association of American Medical Colleges actually has come out with uh, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion policies, and they also look look at changing the paradigm, changing the way we speak about inclusion, about participation. I was sharing with Jennifer about a a term that we like to use, subjects. Uh, Subjects are not the term we use. So thinking about the way we talk about participation in a respectful and dignified way and changing the way we actually write our IRBs, our Institutional Review uh, Board and Consent Forms, changing the paradigm is something that the AAMC is now looking at and actually just put out a recent guide on that. And then we have to think about who's providing care and who's actually in front of these uh, trials and and studies. And are they concordant? If I look in this room this morning, who's making differences? Are we more homogeneous than we would like to be? Then how do we begin to make a difference on every level, whether we're in the clinic, are we in the hospital, are we in the we're. At the boardroom, in the boardroom, how do we diversify in positions of authority who, that make differences in how this kind of work is done? And then just perceptions of medical research. You know, how do our communities perceive us? We are in positions to make change in terms of how people view us. Do they view us as helicopter folks who swoop in, get our DNA, get a, a scan, and then we swoop out? Are we there for the long haul? Are we, there for, are we really interested in making sure that all communities have a positive health outcome? So we know about all of these barriers that get in the way and limit participation of special populations in research. But it's important for us to continue to make the difference, to continue to make the change. If you look at genomics as an example, it's something that we actually do quite a bit of work in with our team and if you just look at the, the 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 underrepresentation in genomics work, it's in this case it's it's just absolutely unacceptable. And again, this is just one example. We can do look look across the board. If you look at genome-wide association studies and you look at the number of, of Europeans, African Americans, and, and Hispanics, not even 10 percent. And so it's it's something that we Continue to struggle with we are making good differences, we're making small steps, but we actually have to do things on a more broad on a broader scale and a more sustainable scale. We have certainly um, seen in the Alzheimer's world an increase in funding. And of course, sometimes funders participate in the injustice because we continue to fund things that are not diverse. We say it, we even put out guides. Uh, like the NIH Revitalization Act about 20 years ago. And we, we required, quote, but then we continue to fund uh, studies that are not diverse. And so it perpetuates the injustice with regard to clinical trials. Uh, we, even put out, we even put out guides for, uh, for doing this work. I thought maybe I had it um, <clears throat> there. But what can funders do to increase uh, the diversity? Well, Community-engaged research is one of the things that we absolutely must do. We have to get into our communities. We have to talk to the appropriate stakeholders. Um, We have to ensure the diversity of the lived experience. In other words, what is it about these populations, these different groups that are creating such difference in health outcomes? So that lived experience is very important for us to study. Um, We have to require training in community engagement we definitely must in order for us to build the trustworthiness with community groups of all types getting into the community sometimes it just takes some grassroots work and i know that's difficult for some of us in this room particularly to hear because it's often your your studies and trials need groups just like that And this is a a long process. The community-engaged process is a long process. And that's why we need to just stay in the community all the time anyway. We need to figure out ways to be present uh, in the community. We need to figure out stakeholders who can connect us at all times. And then that builds the trust that we're talking about, the kind of trust that we're talking about. Um, And then we have to get our communities involved with our work. How do we do that? Uh, There are many ways to do that. In our case, we built uh, a pastors' network. We were trying to to uh, recruit a thousand African Americans for an Alzheimer's study. We we built a network that would build uh, health ministries in these churches that would remain even after we left. So we didn't just hop in and hop out. We actually leveraged our medical school uh, with with speakers for different kinds of work we leveraged the historically black colleges and universities who had just many faculty members from all kinds of disciplines to just come in and help us with that work we had nurses and pas uh, folks on multiple levels to make sure that we remained connected because my institution is known for eugenics And so when we began to talk to the community about people coming in and connecting with us, they were not listening because they have family members who remember people who had to endure that atrocity. It just happened just a few years ago. And so they hated us, basically. So we had to start from where we were. And we had to assure that this was not a one-trick pony, that we were going to be there for the long haul. So in this room, Folks are in position to have line items for community engagement. And that's exactly what we're going to have to do. We have to... maintain a community presence. We have to maintain authentic relationships. And these relationships and stakeholders can connect us to people almost at any time because they're so connected to community-based organizations. They're connected. We did, a, we did one town hall in AD. We did a lot in COVID in the last couple of years. We did one in AD. We had 25,000 folks on that call. And why? Because we worked with the NAACP, and we said we want this, this to be in all 100 counties in North Carolina. And they did that for us. Um, and again, we, we've actually hired community people. We're gonna, we, we, we just got a big U19 grant from the National Institutes of Health, and so we're actually going to hire community members to help us build hubs in their local communities. Many ways to, to engage community and maintain that connection with your study is done. All right, so then what can researchers do? Again, partnering with the uh, communities. And again, in terms of funders, this work takes money, it takes time, it takes people. Uh, maintaining a community presence takes Sometimes it doesn't, and in other cases, it doesn't. We actually, during COVID, all of us got used to using virtual means to do things, so we could always connect now. And even in communities where there's not a lot of um, bandwidth, understanding that and understand how people can connect with their mobile phones and different means, very important in terms of understanding that community, understanding what people have access to, and understanding how you need to get connected, and that could be in diverse ways. And then we have to train our research teams. We have to begin to understand what they understand, how they approach community, how they approach participants. Um, and we have to embed researchers with expertise in our clinical trial system teams. Um, one of the things about community engagement is it gives us an opportunity to make new and innovative relationships. And so it's going to take all of us, as Jennifer likes to say, it takes all of us to contribute to this integration and to this inclusion process. I mean, we looked just a little bit um, about at, at Wake, and we, we began to understand that we had major gaps. As a matter of fact, in our graduate programs where we actually train people to do biomedical research, we've got a number of training programs uh, four undergrads, zero to middle to high, we have to begin to train the, ne- train the next generation in this work long before undergrad. And so this is just one of the gaps that I wanted to bring to your attention, um, is that thinking about who's going to do this work when we, everybody in here retires, we have to begin to integrate and to make sure that we're training appropriately. And quite frankly, NIH has a number of, of, of great programs, but they've not met the bar They've not made it so, again, it's going to take different kinds of relationships and opportunities for getting that next generation there. Our institution also just finished, and Jennifer was a part of the research side of one of our working groups, and we we just finished our racial equity task force, which I co-led with our CEO. Um, and, and we found, um, you know... <laughs> We found a number of things that we didn't really want to see. We knew that we weren't very diverse, but we actually, um, you know, we, when, when you look at the numbers, it, it's more painful. So we can perceive one thing, but we, when we actually see the numbers, it's really very, very painful. So we knew we had a ways to go. And we made, and you don't worry about reading all of these. These slides will be provided to you. But we did make some very important recommendations. So institutionally, and and our Directive from the top is that we will make a difference, we will make a change. And so we have in, on the research side several recommendations, and they really include some of the things that we've already been talking about. But I just make this point to say that, that leadership makes a difference. Uh, those at the table who are making the difference, who are making the policies and the practices matter, that matters. And so when there is leadership that is saying we will make a difference, we will do it differently it really does happen. And then there is the the process institutionally of making sure that everybody on the team understands that change will happen. So I'll just suffice it to say that that institutionally we are making differences. Um, We are looking at these intersections between among researchers, healthcare providers, community. Uh, It's going to take all of that to engage new populations, innovative populations, and then our institution also looked at, uh, we just partnered with Atrium Health, and so integrating all of us and, at, at Wake and, and Atrium Health has been a true, uh, uh, I won't say challenge, well yeah, in some cases it has been challenged. but I think, I think the leadership believes it's going to be great, so I guess we need it to all accept that. So, anyway... Um, the, the integration has given us an opportunity, though, to look at our research. So we formed a steer, an enterprise-wide steering committee um, and then these councils to actually look at research and how we conduct research and how we are excluding populations that need to be e- excluded and then how we need to operationalize a new kind of, a new way of conducting research at the institution. So I think I have five minutes left. So we, again, you know how we all create working groups and task forces and all that business. But what's exciting, and so that does get down to the nitty-gritty, but what's really exciting is the fact that our institution uh, included equity in its, um, um, in, its, in its plan to move forward. It invested $70 million to bring new research, and all of the pieces will include equity. And then there's a special focus On equity, again, the leadership decided that this inclusion, this equity, diversity—very important. Community engagement is a huge piece of this work that we're talking about for the equity piece. So uh, I said all that to say, the institution is moving forward in making sure that we do conduct research in a different way. This is my study, which looks at uh, Alzheimer's disease genetics. In different populations. And, you know, we, we've been working on this for quite some time now. But now the NIH is saying we've got to go back and we've got to look at community. We've got to look at individuals. We've got to look at individual populations. And so this is, this is really exciting for us. And so as we thought about our research and how we plan for research, it involves understanding our community first. And we, it involves the research in the community first, and then we get in step five to the genetics research, making sure that we have done a respectful and dignified integration into the community that in which we're interested, and making sure we're giving that information back to those communities in some form. Um, I'll just don't know what—I um, just want to acknowledge many people. Uh, who've helped us along the way. And and really, quite frankly, it has taken a lot of people, we've been doing this work for about 20 years, a lot of different kinds of people at different kinds of institutions, different kinds of organizations to assist us in assuring that we we actually contributed to the largest genome-wise association study in blacks in Alzheimer's disease. And just to just to to say one one I think I oops I must have gone backwards when I should have gone first, forward. But anyway, the last slide I was going to show you was, is a study done by Lisa Barnes at Rush University, where she actually looks at prevalence of, our, of Alzheimer's disease. And, and she makes the point in a commentary that maybe what we've been describing in, with regard to some of the disparities and some of the prevalence and some of the incident issues may not be that at all. It could be that we don't have enough information about different groups to adequately make a decision about who has what. Now, wouldn't that be a shame to have published all of these papers, done all of this work, and we may not even know what we're doing, because we have failed to introduce research and clinical trials in populations who are burdened the most. So I'll just stop right there and see if there's a question. I guess my time is up, actually. But I'll be around. If anybody has a question, I'd be happy to respond. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Crayco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit Cracoevent.com. Thank you.